If you enjoy doing your own fight research by watching old tape on fighters and coming up with your own predictions, analysis, and breakdowns, the MMA Fight Archive is for you. With over 1,200 fighter profiles currently on the database, this will soon be the largest database in the world with direct links to past fights of fighters in the biggest promotions in the world. So yes, we got UFC Vegas 73 going down this weekend, but also LFA 158, ACA 157, and next Next week there is no UFC event other than the road to UFC and we'll have all links to past fights of all the component or competitors on those cards so if you want to do research and do your own studying the MMA fight archive is here for you we got four spots left in the pioneer tier which saves you 25% off on the lifetime of your subscription and again I had 25 total there's only four spots left so if you want to lock in those savings check the link in the description below or the top comment as well to hop in on the pioneer tier otherwise you got to pay again it's only 9.99 the full price of it very cheap especially if you do your own research i promise it will save you a boatload of time and you won't have to worry about scouring the web to find your own fight links i got you covered over five years of experience doing the damn thing I am one of the best, if not the best in the world in terms of collecting and archiving the data. And I promise I'll have every single fight you could possibly find on the web, even in the deepest, darkest spots. I got you covered for the majority of these fighters. Make sure you guys check it out. You guys will not be disappointed. All right, let's get right into the episode. Appreciate you guys and anybody that's already signed up for the Fight Archive. And I hope you do so after this as well. All right, let's get right into the episode. Welcome to another episode of the MMA Lockcast. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN. This week, we're going over UFC Vegas 73, headlined by a women's strawweight matchup between Angela Hill and Mackenzie Dern. This is actually uh, pretty much plugging the hole that was left in Irene Aldana and Raquel Pennington headlining this matchup. But as you guys know, Juliana Pena falling out of her scheduled matchup against Amanda Nunes in steps Irene Aldana. So Raquel Pennington is now the backup fighter for that matchup. And uh, they plug the hole with two fighters who have had some main event spots of their own. I think other people would be... uh, clamoring for other fights to be filling the main event slot here but here is what we're left with especially considering the ufc circus and uh, the endless amount of events that they have on a week-to-week basis co-main event has a very good middleweight fight between anthony fluffy hernandez and edmund the golden boy shabazian very intriguing fight for both guys there a couple other fun fights sprinkled out throughout the card which i'm always happy to break down for you guys so i can't wait to get into those but before we do let's quickly go over the main predictions of last week's card we go uh so with the lock of the night play almeida inside the distance very easy chalky as hell but that's what lock of the night plays are meant to be at you know if i can get great odds on them great but i want i want to hit these things as often as possible and almeida inside the distance that was a no-brainer i'm glad that he got it done in round one which was also one of my three best prop bets which was around plus 100 so you get a little extra cherry on top for hitting that 
The Bellator lock of the night play does not come through, unfortunately, as Chris Gonzalez fumbled a bag against Tim Wilde. I have yet to see that fight as of yet. I was very busy on Friday hanging with the family and all that stuff, so I still got to get around to figure out how the hell Tim Wilde beat a fighter of Chris Gonzalez's caliber via decision. I thought if Tim was going to win that fight at all, it would likely come by knockout, but he managed to beat him uh, by decision. I got to watch that fight back and see how that ended up happening, so we fall short on the Bellator lock, uh, lock of the night but dog of the night predictions on both cards come through for the UFC we got Brian Battle doing the damn thing I think it only took him 14 seconds to dispose of the overzealous Gabe Green and then for the Bellator card another fight that I haven't seen but Luca Poclet goes out there and out grapples Olivier or Oliver on camp I wanted to make him French for some reason but uh yell grapples on camp I believe he grapples on camp as that's usually how he approaches his fights and he wins that fight by decision as well so solids front on the dog of the night plays but i just hate that i didn't catch the lock of the night play on the uh chris gonzalez side of things because i had very high hopes for him so hopefully i can watch that fight later this week and figure out what the hell went wrong but i'm glad uh again uh lock of the night for ufc comes through and both dog of the night predictions come through as well all right before we get into the rest of the breakdowns for this card actually i just want to quickly update you guys on the numbers here so lock of the night predictions now are 42 and 12 on the year for a 78 percent hit rate which is still not too shabby in my opinion and the sorry i almost had a fly run into my eye just now um uh dog of the night predictions go to 27 and 27 so 50 percent you betting dogs, you cash in at 50%, you're in profit. I'm happy with that. Uh, if you want to get early breakdowns or early access to the breakdowns, you can do that through the Patreon. So not only will you get first access to all the breakdowns of what my predictions are and what my lock of the night prediction is, you'll be the first one to see all of that. Not to mention all the uh, you know all the four fun plays, the parlays, all that stuff. That's all on the Patreon. Five bucks a month, super cheap. Covers the UFC and Bellator, and then there's a regional tier covering the LFA uh cage warriors uh road to ufc will be covered in that as well and uh the pfl when pfl returns in june as well that's all under the regional tier i promise you will not be disappointed as again i only do lock casts for bellator and ufc so if you want those other promotions that's strictly through the patreon ton of great people already on there i think we're over 170 closing in on 180 patrons there and they're all happy i'm pretty certain which is why they're still around so appreciate everybody that's on it and anybody that hopes to jump on afterwards as well and last thing i'm going to plug before we get to the breakdowns my uh, my articles that i do for godzillawins.com i normally plug them in the description below after i drop them wednesdays we do the main event breakdowns Thursdays we do the three best money line spots both of those will be updated in the description below so make sure you guys check those out if you want to see what my main event spot is in written form as well as what my think the what I think the three best money line spots are in written form as well that's where you guys can find them all right let's not waste any more time let's get right into the breakdowns 12 fights to go let's get it started kicking things off in the welterweight division we got 16 and 6 Takashi Sato going up against 10 and 4 Temba Garimbo starting off on the Takashi Sato side who's on a three fight losing streak right now he's looking to save his UFC roster spot by getting his hand raised this weekend 
the Killcliffe FC product has been battling an unfortunate amount of uh, grapplers over his last several fights, other than Brian Battle, who likely would have taken him into the grappling realm should that fight have lasted more, longer than 44 seconds. But it was a beautifully placed head kick that landed from Brian Battle that put Takashi Sato's lights out. But the two prior fights before that, we saw Miguel Baeza and Gunnar Nelson utilize their grappling successfully to get their hand raised over Takashi Sato. Sato's two wins in the UFC have come by knockout, and that seems to be his calling card, utilizing his karate style to blitz in and out of range with his big shots down the middle to find the chins of his opponents and put them away. But the only wins that he has in the UFC are over guys like Ben Saunders and Jason Witt, who were both retired at this point in time and had questionable durability going into those matchups to begin with. He really needs to pull it off this weekend if he hopes to save his UFC roster spot and ensure that his time over there at Killcliffe FC was not for, you know, not a waste of time per any uh, means. Moving on to the next fighter here in Temba Garimbo. He had an unfortunate UFC debut back in February where he lost via guillotine choke to AJ Fletcher. Now, Temba is a long, lanky guy for this welterweight division. However, he doesn't utilize his range in the striking realm. He more so prefers to drag guys to the ground and utilize a top pressure to open up submission opportunities or even ground and pound opportunities or even just go out there and control his opponent for 15 minutes to get his hand raised by decision. He still has some flaws in his striking game. Even though he has a good kicking game, his boxing is a little bit wild and erratic and it leaves his chin out there exposed for his opponents to take full advantage of. But he is making the improvements in the grappling game, which is where he wants to take most of his fights to get his hand raised. So I look forward to seeing his improvements in that realm and seeing if he can bounce back from that abysmal showing in his UFC debut. As much as a concern that I have for the fact that Garimbo hasn't really fought high-level competition, I believe stylistically speaking, this is a good fight for him. He should be able to drag this fight to the ground. He should be able to control Sato for the majority of this fight. And as long as he can stay safe in the striking realm in terms of using his kicks and keeping Sato on the outside, minimalizing sorry, minimizing the amount he uses his hands because of how wild and erratic he can be. He should be able to change levels at opportune moments, drag this fight to the ground, and really put the grind on Sato where it seems that Sato is the most uncomfortable. Kind of surprised that Garimbo is a very slight underdog in the spot. Maybe by the time this comes out or even during fight week, he'll flip to the favorite because of his grappling advantage. But I think he is going to be the side here. Still feel slightly sketchy about him, but I feel like he'll be able to use his grappling advantage correctly here and get the W by decision. Next up in the women's flyweight division, we got 14-5-1 Natalia Silva going up against 9-4 Victoria Leonardo. Starting off on the Natalia Silva side, who's started her UFC career off on a 2-0 run since June of last year. She pulled off a big plus 200 upset against Jasmine Jazduvisius in her UFC debut and followed that up with a beautiful spinning back kick knockout over Teresa Bleda back in November. 
She is a very solid striker with fast hands, good footwork, and great movement, which allows her to skirt on the range of her opponent's uh, distance and then let go with strikes when she feels like she can stop, plant, and throw. She has a very solid jujitsu game as well when she gets on her back, but we did see Bleda have some success in terms of pinning her against the cage, dragging her to the mat, and putting her into compromising positions. But Natalia Silva's cardio paid off in that matchup as she was able to shuck off the takedown attempts in round two, which completely emptied the gas tank of Teresa, which is why Silva was able to shuck her off, get back into open distance, unload with some big strikes, and eventually finish her in that third round. That is the calling card of Silva is her striking. She's very fast with her hands. She has great kicks and she has stinging power, which really hurts her opponents and usually uh, really diminishes their morale and their uh, and their motivation in terms of trying to crash the pocket and get get their hands on Natalia Silva. On the flip side for Victoria Leonardo, she's coming off of a victory over Mandy Boom last time around back in July, where she utilized a grinding heavy approach to pin Mandy Boom against the cage, drag her to the ground every so often, and pretty much control the majority of that matchup. Leonardo has a flashy kicking game of her own, but she's a little, a little bit slow and a little bit clunky at times with her movement, and it's clear that we see the uh, the ceiling of her game, especially through the two losses that she did suffer uh, in her first two UFC fights. She got knocked out by Manuel Firo, and then she had a doctor stoppage due to a broken arm against Melissa Gatto in back-to-back fights. But even if that fight had not been stopped due to the broken arm uh, and she didn't break her arm, she likely would have ended up losing that fight anyway. She is a little bit hindered by her lack of athleticism and explosiveness, which allows opponents like Melissa Gatto, Manuel Fido, and maybe even this week in Italia Silva to get ahead of her and possibly even find the finish. She is still a very tough and gritty fighter that we need to respect given what the standards of women's mixed martial arts is currently at. So she might have some success in terms of pinning opponents up against the cage, dragging them to the mat every so often, but I wouldn't believe in her ability to hold her opponents to the ground, which is where she'll end up coming up short when she's forced to strike with better strikers. It's obvious Natalia Silva will more than likely end up winning this matchup, but at minus 1,000, it's tough to want to put a spot like that into any sort of parlay. If you got in on her at minus 500 a couple days ago, bravo to you, but at minus 1,000, that is the definition of a prohibitive favorite, unless they are the GOAT or something like that. You know what I mean? There are only select fighters that I'd be willing to throw in at those odds, but they have to be one of the best, if not the best fighter in the world. John Jones-esque is what I'm talking about. Um, but the best way to probably approach this is the under two and a half. You know, the speed and stinging power of Silva on the feet might end up being too much for Victoria Leonardo. She might have some success in the early parts of this fight by clinching Silva up against the cage and eating up some clock there. But as this fight starts to go deeper, I think that Silva or Leonardo will eat too much damage. And I think she end up might going down from a, a punch and maybe even a club and sub situation. But I think that Natalia Silva does eventually find the finish here under two and a half, probably my favorite spot. But yes, Silva inside the distance moving over to the lightweight division we got 11 3 and 1 chase hooper going up against 6 and 1 nick fior starting off on the chase hooper side of things he's coming off of a loss to steve garcia back in october where he got knocked out via left hook and ground and pound 
that continued the trend of alternating wins and losses since Chase Hooper had made his UFC debut back in December of 2019, where he's just been winning, losing, winning, losing, winning, losing. And if his trend continues, more than likely he gets his hand raised this weekend. Hooper is still 23 years old and is still trying to make the improvements in the striking game, which he always ends up coming up short in. If opponents are able to stuff his takedown attempts and keep him standing, that's where they're able to get the better of Chase Hooper and punish him on the feet, just like Alex Caceres was able to, just like Steven Peterson, and then obviously most emphatically by Steve Garcia last time around, where he was able to get the knockout in 92 seconds. Chase really needs to work on that aspect of his game and I wouldn't even blame him if he wanted to go out to Thailand for a full year and just train kickboxing strictly for the full uh, 12 months if he were to do that. We know his jiu-jitsu game is high level. He's a BJJ black belt at 23 years old. That's very uh, you know, impressive for somebody uh, of his age. Uh, and we see how successful he can be when he gets fights to the ground and really wear on opponents as fights go deeper like it did against Peter Barrett and even Felipe Clarish, the late great Felipe uh, Clarish. But he really needs to get his wrestling game on tap and especially his... Uh, striking game if he hopes to continue to be successful at the UFC level. On the flip side, we got Nick Fior, who had a very monumental task in his short notice UFC debut back in January when he had to go up against Mateusz Rebeski. That was a very difficult fight for him as he was taking a gigantic step up in competition on short notice against a fellow BJJ black belt who just had him covered in terms of strength, preparedness, and just just power. <laughs> we know what Rabisti brings to the table and he was able to put the full shellacking on Nick Fiore over the full 15 minutes. If there was any glass half full uh, thing that we could take from that fight is the fact that Fior was able to go the full 15 minutes against the guy in Rebecca who's known to go out there and finish most of his opponents. Fiore is a BJJ black belt out of the New England cartel team over there in the Northeast who has uh, fighters like Rob Font and Calvin Cater and Fiore is trying to be the next guy to burst out of that camp uh, that people can look forward to. The big downfall in his game, or at least flaw in his game, is the lack of experience he has against legitimate opponents. Now that he's in the UFC, and hopefully the UFC continues to bring him along nice and slowly after that shellacking he got against Rebeski, he could turn into a decent prospect with you know a very aggressive and solid BJJ black, uh, game that he has uh, fueled by his black belt. I don't mind what we get with this guy, and I think that he could be a problem for a lot of people if he continues to progress at a decent rate, especially with how aggressive he fights uh, utilizing his grappling style. But he still has a lot to show us still, and I look forward to seeing what kind of product we get this weekend. This fight's really a toss-up between which black belt is better. You know, I mean, is Chase Hooper's background in jiu-jitsu more legitimate than Nick Fiore's? Or is Nick Fiore's aggressive style going to be the difference maker in this fight where he should be able to get the better positions against the younger fighter and end up in top position grinding these spots out more, maybe landing some more damaging shots from that top position for him to get this win? 
I like the over one and a half as I think the majority of their jujitsu will cancel each other out for at least seven and a half minutes. And then if one guy's having a tough time dealing with the other jujitsu or the other guy's jujitsu, they might start to slow down and give up some openings for the other guy to take advantage of. But I don't think that happens within the first seven and a half minutes of this fight. So my favorite spot for this fight is going to be the over one and a half. But I'm going to go with Fior. You know, I know he doesn't have the level of experience against guys that Chase Hooper has faced in the past. But I think he is still a guy that's roughly around the level of Chase Hooper and could potentially springboard himself over Chase Hooper if he's able to get the win here. So I'm going to go with the New England cartel product, Nick Fior. I think he wins it by decision, but I'd only be comfortable putting my money on the over one and a half more than anything. Moving up to the heavyweight division, we got 16-8, and Ilir Latifi going up against 9-1, and Rodrigo Nascimento. Starting off on the sledgehammer side here, he's on a two-fight winning streak over his last couple fights, and he's only had two fights in the COVID era, and now this will be his third, and he's hoping to get his first three-fight winning streak going since 2016. It seems as though Latifi is almost fed up with the mixed martial arts game at this point in time, considering the lack of activity we we see from him inside the cage. He's a very strong and bulldozer type opponent where he utilizes his big striking on the feet to parlay that into the grappling and dragging his opponents to the ground where he can do solid work from on top. His cardio looks very suspect more often than not, considering he's very low output, very low volume, but the fact that he can get a lot of control time and enjoy a lot of control time on top of his opponents usually gets him the wins like they have been able to over his last two fights. But if he faces somebody that can provide him with some more resistance, maybe not settle on bottom and can actually do some decent damage on the feet, that's where we see Latifi end up coming up short in his matchups. He's 40 years old. He'll actually be turning 41 in July. But I believe he's had a long enough career at the UFC level now. And the fact that he's fully adjusted to becoming a heavyweight, considering his short frame, but he's very stout, that's for sure. Uh, I think we know that he's just in it to probably cash a paycheck nowadays rather than try to look for a title shot or even make a run into contendership. His opponent this weekend is a little bit different in terms of his approach in the game, in terms of he wants to crack into the top 10, the top 5, and potentially be a contender in the newer future. He's 30 years old, Rodrigo Nascimento is, and he's coming off of a split decision victory over Tanner Bozer, a fight that I thought he deserved to win you know, unanimously, but there's always going to be a wonky scorecard here and there. He had a TKO victory over Alain Baudot that was overturned to a no contest due to a failed drug test, if I'm not mistaken. That was in July of 2021. He was forced out of action for a while, but managed to return in September, like I said, and picked up that win over Tanner Bozer, where he utilized a grapple-heavy approach to drag his opponent to the mat and do some solid work on top. But I wish he would work a little bit more to try to pass the guard of his opponent, try to get to a dominant position where he could do some more solid work and potentially open up a submission opportunity. However, I might be asking a little bit more considering that he's been able to do that in his first couple UFC fights and even the contender series fight that he had back in 2019 that earned him his contract to the UFC. He only has one loss to his record, which was his second UFC fight to Chris Dacus, which he got knocked out in in 45 seconds. But I think he played a little bit too much on the feet against a better striker that night and ended up paying for it. 
Hopefully he's learned that lesson. And the guys over at American Top Team continue to round out his game because he could be a dark horse in this heavyweight division if he continues to put together his game as good as I believe he can. This could be a very ugly and sloppy fight, but I'm going to go with the guy that has more intentions on trying to take his career to the next level, and that's Rodrigo Nascimento. He's going to have struggling or moments of struggle in the early going here, trying to implement his grapple-heavy approach against Latifi, as Latifi is a boulder of a man who is very difficult to take down. But if Nascimento can utilize good leg kicks and utilize his striking, stay away from the big power of Alir Latifi, wear on him a little bit, maybe in the clinch, up against the cage maybe he can start to pull away with this fight a little bit deeper you know this might be a fight that is determined by control time who can gather more control time do good enough damage in those top positions or those controlling positions to pick up a decision here so maybe the overs you know i mean i'd kind of be surprised if either guy ends up getting a finish here maybe if not cemento is able to let his hands go uh you know touch up the slowing ilir latifi maybe that's how he ends up doing it but i think that he's going to try to stay safe as possible push latifi up against the cage drag this fight to the ground eventually and just control him from that top position and take home a decision victory so give me the brazilian give me rodrigo nascimento by decision Moving back to the welterweight division, we got 8-1 Ryan Kosi going up against 6-2 Gilbert Urbina. Starting off on the Kosi side here, he picked up a solid win over Blood Diamond back in July where he was able to land takedowns at will and control his opponent from that top position to win a unanimous decision victory. I was very off in that fight in regards to the fact that I really thought that violence would come through no matter who ended up getting their hand raised that night. I expected Kosi to have a significant advantage on the mat in that fight, and he did, but unfortunately he was unable to bring home the finish, but still managed to get his hand raised by decision. And then on the flip side, I expected Blood Diamond to be the better striker, but there just wasn't enough time in the striking realm for him to showcase his knockout power, which is why Kosi was able to get that fight to the ground over and over again, grinding out his opponent and winning that fight, like I said, by decision. The fight before that against Phil Rowe is where we saw his grapple-heavy approach fail him because he tried a little bit too hard and Phil Rowe was a little bit too difficult to put away, allowing Phil Rowe to stuff the takedowns in the second round and eventually find that knockout to put Orion Kosi's lights out. But Kosi is definitely the better of the two Kosi brothers, as we've seen him go deeper into fights and still find the finish against past opponents, against legitimate opposition, I must say. But I still wonder if there's a bit of a cap on his ceiling once he starts fighting guys that are going to give him legitimate resistance. Switching on over to Gilbert Urbina, who hasn't been in the cage for close to two and a half years now, or sorry, I should say closer to two years, uh, as the last time we saw him in the cage was a short notice spot for him, where he filled in for Trishon Gore, who was supposed to be in the Ultimate Fighter finale against Brian Battle. Gilbert Urbina ended up taking that spot and ended up coming up short in the second round by getting choked out by Brian Battle. But Urbino was having a solid first round as he actually won the uh, first round on two judges' scorecards with a grapple-heavy approach. 
He was able to get some pretty good positions up against the cage and even grab the back of Brian Battle, but was unable to put him away that night. But And then obviously ended up losing in the second round as it was clear that he was running low in terms of his cardio. I'm not entirely sure why he's been out of the cage for as long as he has, but you got to believe that he's been working on his game and will come back an even better fighter now at the age of 27 years old compared to the 25-year-old he was back in 2021. I do believe he is a solid striker and he has a decent grappling game as well. It's just you gotta wonder his level of competition on the regional scene and how that will allow him to fit into the UFC roster. But I'm glad that they're bringing bringing him along at a decent rate, especially how they have him matched up this weekend. This seems like a spot for Gilbert Rabina to pull off the upset. He seems to be the more complete fighter here, the better striker, uh, the better jujitsu player. Like Kosi might be the better wrestler, but I think that. Urbina ties everything a lot better together than what Kosi does. Kosi has a very solid, you know, regional streak that he had before he eventually ran into Phil Rowe. And then he had that big one over Blood Diamond uh, in the middle of last year. But I think that Gilbert Urbina provides way more of a resistance than a guy like Blood Diamond will. You know, Urbina very active off of his back, so I wouldn't even be surprised if he's able to catch a submission at that spot. But the under two and a half, very good spot in my opinion, right? I think that Urbina is going to push a pace that's going to force Kosi to find a knockout or eventually slow down and Urbina is going to be able to find a submission or a TKO from a dominant position. I I wouldn't entirely be surprised if this line ends up flipping throughout this week, as I do think people are going to start to side on the Urbina uh, money line here, considering the value you're getting at plus 130, but not to mention the overall skill advantage that he has in this fight. It's a little bit iffy considering the layoff that Urbina has had, but if he's been working consistently, he has the skill set to beat a guy like Kosi. So give me Gilbert Urbina. I want to say via club and sub, probably in the second round. Heading back down to the women's strawweight division, we got 14 and 7 Carolina Kovalkiewicz going up against 9 and 4 Vanessa Dimopoulos. Starting off on the Polish fighters' side, she is on a two fight winning streak after losing five straight fights between 2018 and 2021. She made an unfortunate return to the cage after retiring after Yanjo, uh, the Yan Nan fight in February of 2020. She returned against Jessica Penne in August of 2021 and came up short via armbar that night. Luckily for her, the UFC brass was more than willing to give her another shot to try to make things right. And she did just that against Felice Herrig where she was able to secure a rear naked choke victory in the second round of their fight. She followed that up with another solid all-around MMA performance against Silvana gomez Juarez back in November, where she was able to pick up a decision victory. Before and the earlier parts of Carolina's UFC career, we're used to seeing her go out there, throw in volume, throw in combinations, and be more than willing to engage in the pocket with her opponents. Over the last two fights, though, we're seeing her a little bit more cognizant in terms of implementing a grappa-heavy approach along with her striking so it looks a little bit better for the judges so that she can get some more opportunistic moments for herself to potentially find a finish like she did against Felice Herrick. It's great to see that evolution in the 37-year-old's game, but you gotta wonder that there's a cap in Carolina's game at this point in her career. She might be able to go out there and be competitive against the Gomez Juarez's of the world, but you gotta wonder at what point will she start falling short against the women that are a little bit hungrier to get to the top of this division. 
Her opponent this weekend, Vanessa Demopoulos, is on a three-fight winning streak, a streak that not a lot of people expected her to achieve after her first couple fights in the UFC, or at least during the fact that she lost the contender series opportunity she had back in 2020, came up short in a uh, in a spot where she was defending her title against Lupita Godinez on the regional scene. But like I said, she's pulled off three straight victories now, an armbar victory over Savannah gomez Juarez, a split decision, which a lot of people didn't believe she won, but apparently two judges believe she did over Jin Yu Fry. And then last time around where she was able to get those just perfect moments where she could get that top control against the better striker and do damage and work from on top to get that decision victory over Maria Oliveira. It's obvious Demopolis needs to get fights to the ground to have success as her striking still needs a lot of work. It's a lot of looping hooks coming down the middle or um, coming around the guard of her opponent with those blitzing attacks that she has. She's usually the uh, smaller of the two opponents whenever she's fighting, but she does a great job in terms of crashing the pocket, getting in on takedowns, or even using her punches to get knockdowns, which she did against Maria Oliveira. And then she does a great job in terms of utilizing her BJJ black belt to get that top position and do some good work from on top. The notable difference from Demopolis this time around is the fact that she ended up leaving the Arizona area where she was getting training at Siege MMA and Fight Ready MMA, and now she's joined up with the team over there at Factory X. Why the change? I'm not 100% sure, but she has a little. She has been a little bit nomadic in terms of her preparation in the past, as she has also spent time at Black House earlier in her career. Curious to see how the change over at Factory X MMA will help her this time around, but I think it will be positive, and it's always a good thing to get different looks and different coaching and different advice. Let's see if it translates to the fight this weekend. It hurts me to see Karolina Kavakovic go into fights where she'll likely end up taking a loss, and I feel like this is one of those fights. Yes, she's making those improvements in the grappling realm, but I feel like she's going to struggle with the BJJ black belt of Demopolis. I think Demopolis will be very strong in those clinch positions and those wrestling positions, which will allow her to be able to get this fight to the ground. And then from that top position, I think she can do very good control. She may be able to finish Carolina as well. I think she can get the back and sink in a choke. But I think that Carolina's confidence from her grappling over the last couple of fights might get her into trouble here. You know, she can do work against Felice Harry. She can do work against Silvana gomez Juarez. But Vanessa Demopoulos, as, you know, as much as people want to shit on her at times, she's solid in the grappling room. And I feel like the advantage she has over Carolina there will allow her to get her hand raised. It will look ugly for Demopoulos if she just if she's unable to get the fight to the ground and this plays out as a kickboxing matchup because clearly Carolina has the advantage there but I feel like Demopolis is strong enough and she's gaining a lot of experience especially with her new training camp where she'll eventually be able to drag this fight to the ground and get that top position she needs to eventually find that submission so give me the underdog here give me Vanessa Demopolis and I think she wins this fight by submission we got a striker's delight headlining the prelim portion of the card going down in the lightweight division with 9 and 2 Mahashate going up against 6 and 3 Slava Claus Vyacheslav Borshev. Starting off on the Chinese fighter side here, he's coming off a loss to Rafa Garcia last time around, which might go down as the bloodiest fight of 2022. 
In the second round, Mahashate was able to cut Rafa Garcia, and Garcia was pouring blood all over the cage, but it was Garcia's grapple-heavy approach that got him the victory that night, even with Mahashate landing some good damage of his own in the striking realm. Garcia did a great job in terms of closing the pocket and nullifying the reach and uh, height advantage that Mahashate was enjoying that night and just minimizing it. He was able to crash the pocket, land some big shots, drag the fight to the ground and really muzzle Mahashate's advantages, which was more than likely going to be at a range fighting striking distance, but that's not something he, he could get off on. We saw that on full display against Steve Garcia when he was able to knock him out with a beautiful counter right as Steve Garcia was crashing the pocket, and that's how Mahashate normally gets his work done. He's able to maintain that distance with his footwork and his kicks and his movement, but when fighters are good enough in terms of crashing that pocket, giving him different looks, that's where he starts to fumble the bag a little bit. He's been getting some solid training over there at Killcliffe FC, and I wonder if they're going to be able to really elevate his game and utilize his frame and his skill set and take him to the next level. His opponent this weekend, Vyacheslav Borshev, is more than willing to exchange with him in the pocket, and that should produce a very fun fight. I think Slava Claus is very happy to get this opponent, considering his last two opponents have taken him down over and over again and won their fights by decision. Borshev, solid striker, and I believe he's the kickboxing instructor over there at Team Alpha Male, and even though he's been working with those grapplers for the majority of his career, it still shows that the grappling aspect of his game is the weakest part of his game. But like I said, the UFC is matching him up with a fellow striker this weekend where we could see the best version of Vyacheslav Borshev now that he's going to be able to showcase his striking, which is what he was able to do against Chris Duncan on the Contender Series, which earned him his UFC contract, and even against Dakota Bush, who was unable to get him to the ground, and then it was an eventual liver shot that crumbled him back in January of 2022. Borshev very solid striker, throws in combinations, has some good heat in his punches, but I love the fact that he starts with the body of his opponent and then eventually works his way up as his opponent continues to drop their guard due to the blistering and just pummeling body shots that he just brushes them with. I love his striking style and I look forward to seeing if he can keep his UFC roster spot if he gets a win this weekend. This is a great fight for the head prelim headliner because just as it goes into the main card, you're going to see a striking display from both guys here. If somebody's going to be looking to grapple in this matchup, I think it's going to be Mahashate, but I don't think he's going to be able to do it effectively enough here against a guy in Borshev who we know his weakness is grappling, but we know he has good enough defensive grappling against a guy who's mainly a striker that's looking to grapple like Mahashate. I'm not saying for sure that the Chinese fighter is going to go out there and grapple, but I think that it if there is one person that's going to, it will likely be him. But I expect this fight to mainly play out in the striking realm, and Borshev is far cleaner and far more technical in that realm than Mahashate. That will open up a ton of body work for uh, Slava Claus as he'll really start to slow down Mahashate with some good body kicks and some good body work. And I think that will eventually open up a shot to the face and to the head where he'll be able to put Mahashate down. So I like Borshev here. I like the unders. I'm expecting some violence here, and I think it's going to be Slava Claus that comes out once again, snaps that two fight winning streak, and earns another knockout victory in the UFC. Heading into the main card, we'll stick with the lightweights here as we go with 17 and 5 Diego Fajera going up against 21 and 18 Michael Johnson. 
starting off on the Diego Fajera side, who hasn't seen action in close to two and a half years as he's been out of the... Actually, sorry, a year and a half since he's been out of the cage since his fight with Matoush Gamrot at the ending of 2021. That was a fight where I believe he was submitted to strikes due to an injury that he had suffered, and he was scheduled to come back against Ricard Close in July of last year, but unfortunately another injury has kept him out of action. I believe he's had to go through a surgery, if I'm not mistaken, and dealt with a lot of injuries during the soft time, and that's usually not a good sign for a fighter that's at 38 years old and at this point in their career. I was a big uh, Fortis Fajera fan, especially during that six-fight winning streak he had put together between 2016 and 2020. Unfortunately, we see that he starts to come up short against better fighters like he did against Benio Darius, Gregor Gillespie, and Matos Gamrot. I believe that we've seen the pinnacle of Fajera's career, which is going to be that six-fight winning streak that he was on, where he picked up very solid wins against guys like Rustam Habilov, Marbek Tysimov, and even Anthony Pettis, even though it was the 2020 version of Anthony Pettis. Fajera, at his best, can utilize his forward pressure, big punching power, and kicks to really push his opponents to the brink, and then if he felt he had a solid advantage in the grappling, he would chase that, look to get his opponents to the ground, and control them from on top, and do some good work in that aspect. That is, if he has advantages in those realms. When he doesn't, that's where we see him start to come up short, like he is, has been in his last three fights, which have all been losses. On the flip side is Michael Johnson, who I'll always say has the, salt, the, the most misrepresenting record for the skill set that he has. He's 21 and 18. He's almost at a 500 record, you know, 40 fights into his career, uh, which is wild for a fighter that has the skill set that he has. But he went through a very tumultuous run after, I'd say, even dating back to uh, after he beat Edson Barboza in 2015. Since that fight, he's managed to win uh, one, two, three, five times and has lost three, six, eight times. He's five and eight during that run, which also includes a knockout victory over Dustin Poirier back in 2016. But even, you know, if you want to date it to 2019, he's only two and five, which is not a good look. You know, I mean, he is a much better fighter than that. With his combination striking, his ability to put his punches together and power on his opponents like he did against Alain Patrick, you see the skill set that he has. Even the split decision loss to Jamie Malarkey, that's a fight that he easily could have won given the success that he had with his striking. We saw a great version of him last time around as he pulled off the upset victory as a plus 260 underdog to Mark D.A. Casey. He's shucked off all the takedowns that D.A. Casey was bringing his way. And then he beat him to the punch with his strikes and absolutely muzzled Mark D.A. Casey's offensive game that night. When Michael Johnson is on, he is very difficult to deal with with the volume and combinations he puts together. And if he can keep most of his fights upright, he is very live to pull off the victory more often than not. If Michael Johnson's striking defense and his durability holds up in this matchup, as well as his takedown defense, he should be able to style on Diego Fejera in the striking realm. A lot of success from Diego in the past has come from his pressure, forward movement, and just putting volume on his opponents, but that was against guys who could not keep up with the striking style that he brought to the table. Michael Johnson will be continuously countering him and putting punches in his face, which will demoralize the returning Diego Fejera. 
again, knowing the age of Ferreira, knowing the injuries and everything that he's had to come back from, it's going to be tough for him to get into a role and a groove against a guy like Michael Johnson, who's the superior technical striker in this matchup. Again, it's going to come down to Johnson's ability to keep this fight upright because if he can, he'll have a serious advantage in the striking realm and I think he'll be able to beat up Diego Ferreira on the feet en route to a decision victory. Moving up a division here and going to the welterweights, we got 16-6 and Andre Fialio going up against 15-6 and Joaquin Buckley. Starting off on the Andre Fialio side, who's running a two-fight losing streak after getting finished both by Jake Matthews and Muslim Salikov in 2022. It's unfortunate for Andre Fialio. The 2022 campaign actually started off very positive as he was able to get two straight victories over Miguel Baeza and Cameron Van Camp. Unfortunately, he fell short to Jake Matthews and Muslim Salikov, both guys who were able to withstand that early onslaught from the heavy hitter and then were able to put him away in the latter parts of that fight. That is normally how Andre Fialio fights go, as if he's not able to finish you early, it's more than likely that he's going to end up losing a decision or getting finished later on in that matchup. Just look at his last four fights, or even between now and his last four uh, losses. Uh, starting off with the Antonio Dos Santos Jr. fight, at the ending of 2020, he lost that fight via decision because he started to fall off in terms of his cardio. His next four fights, he won all by uh, stoppage. James Vick, he finished halfway through the second round. Uh, next fight, 18-second knockout. Uh, fight after that, he finished with 13 seconds left in the first round. And then he defeated Stefan Sekulich, former UFC fighter, over there in UAE Warriors, where he knocked him out in less than two minutes. But then he gets his short notice UFC debut against Michel Pereira. That fight goes the full 15 minutes, and you see him slowing down the later that that fight goes. Wins his next two fights in the first round, but then you see him lose his next two fights in the second and third rounds by finish. That is the tale of the tape on Andre Fialio. Big heavy hitter. He's a great hammer in the early going, but he's a very horrible nail as fights start to go down the stretch. His opponent this weekend, Joaquin Buckley, is on a losing streak of his own as he ended up coming up short against Nasruddin Imovov back in September at UFC Paris in a very close fight that ended up going to a decision that Imovov ended up clearly winning. And the next time around at UFC 282, he got knocked out by Chris Curtis in the second round of their matchup in a very, you know, competitive fight in the early goings there. But it was Chris Curtis who was just a little bit tighter in the boxing and pocket where he was able to land that big punch on Buckley and put his lights out. Normally, Buckley is very good with his high tight guard, closing the distance and utilizing a barrage of punches to keep his opponents on at bay, but he also uses a solid kicking game to keep them at distance where he's eventually able to close that pocket when he sees the opening so that he can land his big punches. I think it'll be hard to top his victory over Albert Derive, where he was able to utilize very good takedown defense and beat his opponent up on the feet, which eventually was stopped at the ending of round two due to a very swollen and completely shut uh, left eye, I believe it was, from Albert Derive. Buckley is still capable of high-level performances, and if his durability and chin can hold up, and even his striking defense can just be tweaked a little bit more, he's going to be a very tough power puncher to deal with, who has a solid amount of experience under his belt now, especially considering that he's been in the UFC since 20, I believe it was August of 2020, and has already put together, uh, I believe this is going to be his 11th fight. Let me just 
quickly make sure one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yes, this is going to be his 10th fight in the UFC since August of 2020. Absolutely crazy how active he's been staying, but he's going to need a win this weekend if he hopes to save his, save his spot on the UFC roster. I'm expecting a knockout in this matchup, and I'm expecting it to come from the Joaquin Buckley side. But the early going is going to be very difficult as Fialio puts big power on his opponents, and we've seen Buckley's durability kind of work against him as of late. And that's a big question mark, right? If he's too willing to exchange in the pocket here against Fialio, he is more than susceptible to getting hit and put out. Fialio, in my opinion, not a ranked worthy fighter, probably not even a top 25 to top 30 fighter in the UFC in this specific division. So I think he's going to struggle with Buckley as Buckley is able to crash the pocket with a high tight guard, land his more technical boxing strikes, land his cleaner, tighter punches, and that could eventually find that knockout for him. But I think that's going to come with some adversity early here. Fialio will be able to land and it's going to be a nail biter the entire time. But if Buckley can get this fight into the second round, maybe even to the third round, his forward aggression his pace and his pressure is going to really start to catch up to Fialio and that will open up the knockout opportunity for Buckley so I like fight doesn't go to decision most in this matchup but I'm going to go with Buckley to get this win and I think it comes by knockout and I'm going to be targeting that round three spot maybe even round two for Buckley but we all know Fialio does worse if fights go into deep water and I feel like Buckley has the experience has the skill and has the technical advantages to take advantage of the slowing down of Fialio and finish him later on in this fight so give me Buckley let's call it round three TKO taking place at a catch weight of 120 pounds we got 12 and 7 Emily Ducati going up against 9 and 3 Lupita Godinez Starting off on the Ducati side, she had a very solid UFC debut back in July where she was able to batter the lead leg of Jessica Penny and go en route to win that fight via decision. Unfortunately, in December, she came across Angela Hill in a fight that she could not get her own offense off and she ended up losing that fight via decision. It was Angela Hill who was able to get first and last to the punches that night, doubling her, up, doubling her up on strikes, beating her to the punch, and just putting an absolute beating on Ducati that night, who could not get anything going. Ducati is a solid all-around fighter with a good amount of experience under her belt, fighting some pretty solid level of opponent, uh, or pretty good level of opponent on the regional scene, even before making her uh, UFC debut back in July of 2022. I think it was the right cross to head kick knockout that she had over Danielle Taylor back in August of 2021 that really put her on the map for a lot of people. And then she was able to capture the Invicta uh, strawweight title in May of 2022, which eventually got her called up to the UFC uh, and, and had that showcase spot with Jessica Penne. She still has some solid potential at 29 years old and training with a solid team as well. I think that Ducati can make some changes to improve her game and then get back into the thick of things here and possibly find herself in the top 15. It's just tough stylistic matchups at time that end up catching her off guard just like it did against Angela Hill and she might face that moving forward but there are still a lot of women that she could beat at this 115 pound division. Lupito Godinez is making a quick turnaround after defeating, defeating Cynthia Calvillo back at UFC 287 at the beginning of April. It was Pollyanna Vienna who ended up falling out of this scheduled matchup against Ducati and Lupita quickly raised her hand and said, hey, let me try getting another win streak going here by taking on Emily Ducati. 
Godinez is known for her strike or sorry her wrestling, but she leans on her striking a little bit more than I believe she should. I believe it was the Angela Hill fight that a lot of people believed that she should have taken that fight to the ground or at least been more active for takedowns. But we have to give some credit to Angela Hill for making it difficult for Godinez to get in on the hips. Whether it was the knees or the uppercuts that Angela Hill was flashing, Godinez just seemed a little bit too uh, frustrated or a little bit too shy in terms of changing levels to try to get that takedown. Against Cynthia Calvio, she showed a very solid all-around game with takedowns and even some solid striking, which ended up getting her hand raised that night. She's a very solid all-around fighter that's still trying to gather the experience to break through to the next level, but she's still only 4-3 and three through her first seven fights at, this high, uh, at the highest level of mixed martial arts. I think she has a ton of time to grow still, only at 29 years old. I look forward to seeing what kind of version we'll see of her this weekend. I believe it's going to have to be a grapple-heavy approach if she looks to get her hand raised. I feel like this is somewhat of a close matchup, but the difference maker is going to be the wrestling of Godinez. And now it's just hoping that Godinez actually goes after those sequences rather than just waiting a little bit too long like she has in the past couple fights. If she's able to put her punches together, which she might even have the slickers boxing out of the two fighters here and then chain of wrestling or, or a takedown behind those combinations she should be able to pull away in this matchup and not make it look close Ducati is a good kickboxer but I think that she's a better kicker than she is a puncher whereas it's the opposite for Godinez who I think is a better puncher than she is a kicker but it's all coming down to the takedown sequences that I expect to happen in this matchup if Godinez can continue to move forward put some punches on Ducati, change levels, get this fight to the ground. And even if she doesn't control her for a majority or a large majority of time, at least those, you know, those dominant moments of being on top of Ducati, landing some good shots from on top, and then having her success in the striking realm, hopefully that's enough for the judges to see it in her favor. Ducati still has some fight in her, don't get me wrong. So this could play out closer than I'm making it sound, but I just feel like Godinez has a little bit more tools in her toolkit compared to what Ducati is going to be bringing to the table. So give me a little Pito Godinez, and I'm going to take her to win this fight by decision. We got the co-main event coming up right now, going down in the middleweight division, where we got 12-3 Edmund Shabazian going up against 10-2 Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. Starting off on the Edmund Shabazian side, he finally bounced back with a victory last time around back at UFC 282, where he was able to knock out Dalcha Lungiambula in the dying seconds of round two. That was on the back end of a three-fight losing streak, which included his first-ever professional MMA loss to Derek Brunson, followed by a Jack Hermanson decision loss, and then eventually an elbows from Crucifix TKO from Nasruddin Imovov in November of 2021. It must have felt like a very long three years until the next time that Edmund was able to get his hand raised as he had been such a, you know, a beast, a, a guy that was on the come up, a, a very hot prospect that was knocking out opponents left and right en route to that main event slot against Derek Brunson in August of 2020. It's been a harsh learning lesson for Edmund Shabazzin as he has showcased that his cardio is usually not the best part of his game. It looked a little bit better in the Dolce Lungiambula fight, but I believe it was the stylistic approach that night, or at least stylistic clash that night. Dolce was allowing Edmund to skirt the distance and utilize a kick-heavy approach to keep him at distance and allowed Edmund to fight that fight at his own pace. 
which is why Edmund was able to showcase a solid gas tank through the nine minutes that fight that uh, actually occurred. But I'm wondering how he's going to deal against higher level of opponents who won't allow him to just skirt around at that that distance and get away with fighting the fight at his pace. He still has stellar striking and good power in his hands, so we have to give him his respect there. But I'm curious to see how much the improvements can be shown since joining the team over there at Extreme Couture before that Dalcha Lungi and Bula fight. I still think he's a high-level fighter and has a ton of potential, but he needs to showcase it against legitimate opponents if we, if we can give him the respect that he got during his come-up. On the flip side for Anthony Hernandez, riding a three-fight winning streak, his only two losses in the UFC coming to Marcus Perez and Kevin Holland, uh, Anthony Hernandez is a very tough out for most opponents. He even has a five-round decision victory over Brendan Allen back in their LFA days where he was able to capture the LFA middleweight title. That earned him a shot on the 2018 season of the Contender Series where he knocked out Jordan Wright in 40 seconds and earned his UFC contract. Unfortunately, I believe he tested positive. I can't recall what it was for and that and his UFC debut was eventually uh, pushed to February of 2019 where he ended up losing to Marcus Perez. I've long called Anthony Hernandez the poor man's Cain Velasquez and as he continues to rack up victories in the method in which he does I think he can start shedding that poor man's moniker if he can get into the ranked uh, middleweights and start making a run towards the title. His relentless wrestling style and cardio is very difficult to deal with a lot of opponents and I love his willingness into knowing that it's going to be hard for him to hold his opponents down but he does such a good job in terms of Matt returning his opponents or threatening them with that uh, front series of choke that he loves the the guillotine or the darce choke or the anaconda choke he's just very very good at snatching onto those and putting his opponents back on their back or snatching up that choke and just taking it on home with him he fought a very good fight against Marc-Andre Barrio last time against a guy who likes to fight similarly to him in more in, in in the aspect of putting pressure on his opponents and trying to break them with cardio but Hernandez showed he was one of the better guys out there to do that style of uh, fighting, which is why he was able to get that win over Barrio. I think Hernandez is one of the dark horses in this middleweight division. And if he can shore up his striking defense a little bit more so he doesn't get clipped and put out like he has been in the Marcus Perez and Kevin Holland fights, he is going to be a very difficult fighter to deal with given his pace, given his cardio, and given his wrestling. I think he's a high-level opponent, and I hope that we continue to see him improve because he's going to be very tough to deal with for the top of this middleweight division. Outside of a first-round knockout from Edmund Shabazian here, I feel like this is a smash spot for Anthony Hernandez. This is the perfect style for Hernandez to showcase why he's such a badass. That relentless forward pressure, the endless grappling, the takedowns, even if he continues to fail the takedowns, he's going to stay on it relentlessly and he's eventually going to get that top position against Shabazian. It might not be the first round, but it for sure will be the second round and even the third round where he's going to eventually be able to get that finish, possibly by submission. I love Hernandez in this spot and I'm sure there might be some people that's going to be taking a or that will be taking a shot on the plus money that you can get on Shabazian here but I think you're better set on taking Shabazian by knockout early on in this matchup um, maybe even round one by KO as the best hedge but I really feel that Hernandez is going to put too much pressure on Shabazian here Shabazian is going to slow down that 
unfortunate cardio problem that he has is going to showcase himself once again and Hernandez is going to drown him and then eventually finish him by choke uh, again I feel pretty damn good about this uh, I'll happily take this one on the chin if Hernandez doesn't get this one done but I feel like stylistically if he can evade that big punch punching power early he's gonna drown Shabazian and finish him later on in this matchup no doubt about it Hernandez is the dark horse in this middleweight division and I really really believe that it could be a top 10 maybe even top five guy if he continues to round out his skills but he is a very difficult fighter to deal with and I think that Shabazian is going to find that out in a very harsh way so give me Anthony Hernandez I'm going to call it round two by submission and it is time for the main event of the evening which goes down in the women's strawweight division we got 12 and 3 Mackenzie Dern going up against 15 and 12 Angela Overkill Hill Starting off on the Mackenzie Dern side of things here. She's coming off a main event loss to Yan Xiaonan back in October. And now she's looking to rebound with another main event victory if she's able to pull that off here against Angela Hill. And I shouldn't have said another main event victory as she has lost both of her main event showcase spots against Marina Rodriguez and Yan Xiaonan. She's hoping to make good on it this weekend against Angela Hill. Now the issue obviously in Dern's game is always going to be the striking. Like, sure, it looked good against Averna Jandiroba, but she really needs to get fights to the ground if she hopes to have success. She was able to get a weird victory over Tisha Torres in fights that she didn't really need to land takedowns, but still ended up getting that control time she needed to beat Tisha that night. But even after getting 10 minutes of control time against Yan Xiaonan, she was unable to pull off a submission and ended up losing a decision that night due to the endless amount of damage that Yan Xiaonan was able to land whenever they were in the striking row. That is pretty much the calling card for a lot of opponents for Mackenzie Dern is to just work on that submission defense. Know that you might end up in a compromising position, but if you can stay safe enough, if she has your back or if she has a good dominant position on you, you might be able to ride out that round and then eventually wait for the next round to start and then get your own damage off on the feet until she maybe gets the takedown again. She only has an 11% takedown accuracy rate, which is absolutely crazy. But the fact that she continuously goes for takedowns, at least you know that she's reliable to go out there and chase her one win condition, which is normally that top control and or submission if she can pull it off. She needs to work on her hands and put a good takedown attempt behind that if she hopes to get to the top of this division. Otherwise, she's always going to get beat up by the better striker and she's going to be unable to get fights to the ground where she does her best work. Angela Hill is coming off a victory, or sorry, I should say two straight victories in fights where she was the underdog. She was able to beat up Lupito Godinez on the feet as well as Emily Ducati, where she just used very good strikes and uh, volume to just stay ahead of her opponents. If she can keep up takedown defense and keep most fights on the feet, she's very difficult to deal with as she's usually in that triple uh, number or triple figures in terms of significant strikes landed just because of how much she throws and how consistent she stays with her output. She's one of the more tenured fighters in the UFC which, with her being at 38 years old and the amount of fights that she has but she has showcased over the last couple of fights that she can still be very dangerous against these fighters that are on the, up, are on the come up and are still considered prospects. 
if she can just really round out her full work, really round out her volume and keep fights in the stand-up realm, she's going to be difficult to deal with for a lot of fighters, even at this stage of her career. I'll start this off by saying that this is the least confident I'm on, uh, or the least confident fight out of all the fights on this card, because it could go one of two ways, right? Or, uh, you know, where either fighter looks minus 300 in terms of Mackenzie Dern getting the takedown and finding submission really quickly. Or Angela Hill does what she did in the Lupita Godinez fight, always fainting those uppercuts or even throwing those uppercuts and those knees up the middle to deter Mackenzie Dern from shooting the double leg takedown or even a takedown of any sort. And that will allow Angela Hill to control and dictate the pace of this fight and keep it on the feet. She'll be able to batter Mackenzie Dern on the feet. And I think that it could even potentially uh, maybe find a finish later on in this matchup now that it's going to be five rounds compared to the three that they were supposed to fight a couple weeks back. But like, I just, it's so hard to have confidence on either side because the other side could look abysmal if the fight goes one way or the other right like uh, if Dern is unable to get takedowns it's going to look like the Marina Rodriguez fight it's going to look like the Yan Nan fight maybe with not nine minutes of control time though and then on the flip side um she might be able to get the takedown and control like like she did against Tisha Torres it's absolutely possible I'm going to lean with the striker here though I'm going to go with the footwork the output and hopefully decent enough takedown defense here from Angela Hill that she should be able to batter Mackenzie Dern on the feet either win this fight late or by decision if you have one of those bookies that allows you to take the round four or five decision prop I think that would be a good spot as well but I think that the experience of Hill should be able to come through here she should be able to stay safe on the feet but no way am I putting my money on either spot in this fight. Either girl could be flaky. I'm going to go with the striker here, though. Give me Angela Hill by decision. And there you guys go, a breakdown of all 12 fights for this UFC Vegas 73 card. We got LFA 158 going down later this week. I'll have breakdowns for that entire card strictly on the Patreon. So if you guys want to get access to that, check the link in the description below. Reminder, there's only four spots left in the Pioneer tier of the MMA Fight Archive. Get access to all the fighter profiles for the upcoming fights. Uh, again, we're at about 1,200 fighter profiles as of right now. We're adding more every single day. And then I promise you it's going to be one of the biggest in the world within a matter of months as we get to the 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 mark. We're adding fighters every day. It's going to be great. I can't wait till it gets to that point so I can keep saying that it is the biggest uh, in the world for sure. All right. Appreciate everybody checking out the show. As always, hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already. I'll be back on Thursday with the Lucky Trinity, back on Friday with the three best prop bets. And then next week is an off week. We got Road to UFC. I'll be covering those fights strictly on the Patreon, but there will be no MMA lawcast next week. Regardless, I'll see you guys at the end of the week. Peace. Last thing. Bye.